Moving through the 12 points that show Christianity to be true, let's, let's be reminded from the very beginning. Number one, truth about reality is knowable. Number two, the opposite of true is false. Number three, it is true that a theistic God exists. Number four, since God exists, then miracles are possible. Number five, miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. Number six, the New Testament is historically reliable. Number seven, the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be God. Let me say that again. In the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be God. Number eight, Jesus proved to be God by miracles, namely his resurrection. Number nine, is what we covered in the Trinity, with Jesus uh, is being God, being the second person, fully God, fully man in the Trinity. Number 10, since Jesus is God, whatever he teaches is true. And that was last week's show. This week, we deal with number 11. Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God. So in many places, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, acknowledged it as God's word, and considered himself to be a fulfillment of the Old Testament. He promised the New Testament and claimed divine authority and supremacy for the Bible as a whole. The divinely inspired New Testament authors concluded that all scripture is inspired by God and directed toward training us in righteousness. My name is Rob Lundberg, and you are listening to the Let's Get Real podcast. And welcome to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you uh, for tuning in this week. You know, we've really come a long way when it comes to going through this uh, 12-point project. Uh, this 12-point process and this 12-point argument, and we're actually on the next to last point. And what I want to deal with today is the fact that Jesus affirmed the Bible as the Word of God. You know, we began with the undeniable affirmations that there is a real world, that reality is knowable. And we came to the conclusion that the opposite of true is false. And from there, we moved to God's existence. And then the fact of a theistic God existing, we still did not uh, separate the great monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It wasn't until the resurrection. When the resurrection is actually the, the great divider with regards to uh, who Jesus is, what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be, and then proving it by rising from the dead. Now, when we have looked at all of these things, and last week we talked about the idea of that since Jesus is God, whatever he teaches is true, Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God. And what I want to do is what I want to do is I want to take us through a short jaunt of several ideas that I want us to think about. And I'll give you some scripture. I'll, I'll share with you some scripture as well with that to basically back my points up. Now, when we say that Jesus confirmed the Old Testament as the word of God, Jesus and his disciples used the phrase, it is written, 
Now, in the Greek text, it says gregrathatai, which means it stands written. And it's usually, and that is what is called the perfect tense. Now, with regards to this, Jesus said to uh, many people at the time, he says, it is written, or it stands written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said unto him, it is written, or it stands written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus also said again, it is written, that you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And then Jesus also says to him, get thee hence, Satan, for it stands or it is written. It stands written. That phrase, it is written, means it stands written. It, st- it stood when it was first written. It stood when Jesus spoke it. And it stands written even today. So what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to think about a few things here with regards to the whole idea of Jesus confirming and affirming the Old Testament scriptures were the inspired word of God. Now, when we talk about this, Jesus did affirm that the Old Testament scriptures were, number one, they were imperishable. When he said, think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And think not that I have am come to make void the law and the prophets, For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And that's Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Jesus believed the Old Testament was imperishable and the word and the eternal word of God. And he agreed with the prophet who said, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. He quoted that, but also He's quoting Isaiah in Isaiah 40 and verse 8. Secondly, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament scriptures were the inspired word of God. Now, Jesus never used the word inspiration. He did use its equivalent. To the Pharisees' question, he retorted, How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? That's Matthew 22, verse 43. And indeed, David himself said in his own words, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue, 2 Samuel 23, 2. Now, this is precisely what is meant by inspiration. The prophet Zechariah said of the Old Testament to his time and his writings that the law and the words of the Lord of hosts has sent, was, has sent by his Spirit through the form of prophets. That's Zechariah 7 and verse 12. Number three, Jesus affirmed the scriptures are unbreakable. And this is the word infallible. You know, a lot of people say the Bible's infallible, but it's not inerrant. I'm not going to chase that rabbit today. But I do believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And Jesus did as well. The, the Bible is more than infallible. It is also inerrant. It is without error. But speaking to the whole idea of the scriptures being unbreakable, this is what the word infallible actually means in the Bible. The, but it's a close cousin to the word unbreakable. Jesus said, if he called them gods unto the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken. That's John 10, verse 35. And indeed, three powerful words describe the Old Testament in this 
short passage. Law, verse 34, the word of God and unbreakable. Thus, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the unbreakable law of God. Number four, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament is the very word of God. You see this in Matthew 15, verse 3 and verse 6, where Jesus regarded the Bible as the word of God. Jesus insisted elsewhere that it contained the commandment of God. That's Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verses 3 and 6. And the same truth is implied in his reference to the indestructibility in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. And elsewhere, Jesus, his disciples call it the oracles of God. That's Romans 3, 2 and Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. Number five, Jesus ascribed ultimate supremacy to the Old Testament. You know, Jesus asserted the ultimate authority and supremacy of the Old Testament over human teaching or tradition. He said to the Jews, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your, trans- tra- your tradition. Matthew 15, verses 3 and 6. Now, Jesus believed the Bible alone has supreme authority. That's I mean. Let me say that again. Jesus believed that the Bible alone has supreme authority. Even the most revered of all human teachings that conflict it. The Bible is superior to human teachings. Scripture alone is God's supreme authority. Number six, Jesus affirmed the inerrancy of scriptures. You know, and the battle for inerrancy is all over the place today. It's, it's, people are trying to redefine it into a functional inerrancy, but when we talk about inerrancy, we're speaking of the fact that the Bible is the complete inerrant word of God. Whatever the Bible teaches in the original manuscripts is without error. You cannot take a concocted historiographical approach to the Bible and particularly the New Testament and think that you're doing this new hermeneutic instead of doing hermeneutics the way that it was originally uh, prescribed by the Chicago Statement for biblical hermeneutics, not just the Chicago Statement for inerrancy. I endorse and affirm both as well as the Chicago Statement for biblical application. But let's talk about this inerrancy. Inerrancy means that it's without error. The concept is found in Jesus' answer to the Sadducees, which was a sect that denied the verbal, the verbal inspiration of the Old Testament, and they also denied the uh, afterlife. When Jesus said, You do error not knowing the Scriptures, which do not err, nor the power of God. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus affirmed the total truthfulness of Scripture, saying to the Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. It is noteworthy that he said God's word is truth, not, mer- not merely has truth. For in truth, folks, there is no error. Let's move to number seven. Jesus affirmed the historical reliability of the Old Testament. 
When we talk about this, Jesus affirmed as historically true some of the most disputed passages of the Old Testament, including the creation of Adam and Eve. You know, some people are going back to that and saying, well, you know, it's allegory or it's a mythology or it really didn't happen the way that the Bible says it is. Of course, Jesus debunks that. Jesus debunks that in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, and also the miracle about Jonah, the great fish, and the destruction of the world by the flood in the days of Noah. Of the latter, Jesus declared, as it was in the days of Noah, so will be it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day, of Noah, up to the day Noah entered the ark. That's Matthew 24, verses 37 to 38. Now, if that's allegory, then Jesus is an allegorist. And if that's the case, then he really wasn't telling the truth. That would make him a liar. And then that would also debunk him as being God in human flesh. But Jesus told the truth. Jesus knew that as history. So Jesus is right over any any new hermeneutical approach to scripture. Jesus also affirmed that Jonah was really swallowed by the great fish for three days and three nights. He says in Matthew 12, verse 40, so it was with the days of Jonah, three days, three, Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus also spoke of the slaying of Abel in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Matthew 8, 11. The miracles of Elijah, we, we read about that in James chapter 5, verse 17. And many other Old Testament persons and the events that are historically true, including Moses, Isaiah, David, Solomon. We see, read about those in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. And even Daniel, who was a prophet and not a historian, according as, as liberal theologians would say. Jesus affirmed the historical reliability of major disputed passages in the Old Testament. Both the manner in which these events are cited, the authority they are given, and the basis they form for major teachings Jesus gave about his life, his death, and also his resurrection, which revealed that he understood these events as not allegorical, not apocalyptic, but they were historical. And number eight, Jesus affirmed the scientific accuracy of the Old Testament. Wait a minute. Scientific accuracy? You know, atheists say that the Bible doesn't have any scientific facts. Include liberals even say the same thing. And basically, folks, liberalism is nothing more than secular humanism in religious clothing. So... You're telling me, Rob, that Jesus affirmed scientific facts. Yes, I am. The most scientifically disputed chapters in the Bible are the first few chapters. Yet Jesus affirmed this account in Genesis to be scientifically accurate in its central claim, namely the creation of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve. And Jesus unflinchingly bases his moral teaching about marriage on the literal truth of the creation of Adam and Eve. He said to the Pharisees, have you not read? At the beginning of the created time, he created male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, he spoke to various issues that are being violated today 
outside of the bounds of biblical marriage. Jesus defined biblical marriage and what marriage really is all about in that passage. But I'm not going to get into that right now. Further, he spoke of the beginning of the creation in Mark chapter 10 and the beginning of creation, which God created in Mark chapter 13, verse 19. After speaking to Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, about physical earthly things like birth and wind, Jesus declared, I've spoken to you earthly things. Do you believe me? Do you not believe me, I should say? How will you believe if I told you heavenly things? That's John 3, verse 12. In short, Jesus said that unless one could believe him when he spoke of empirical matters, then they should not believe him when he speaks of heavenly matters, revealing that he considered them both scientific and, and, and applicational real-life matters. He considered those inseparable. Now what I'd like to move to in the remaining time that we have, that Jesus did promise the, Old, the, the New Testament. You know, not only did he believe the Old Testament, he also promised the New Testament. He affirmed the New Testament, and his apostles and New Testament prophets claimed their writings as to what Jesus had promised. In other words, what Jesus promised, the apostles and the prophets delivered. Let me give you some principles on this. Jesus first said that the Holy Spirit would teach his disciples all truth. Jesus promised that the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. He also added that when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that he shall speak. This promise was fulfilled when they spoke and later recorded the New Testament, everything that Jesus had taught them. Given the spiritual context and the fact that Jesus never taught all the truth of human disciplines and all truth, to which Jesus refers must be all truth that relates to well, doctrine and practice, doctrine and practice. A lot of, there's a lot of practice in the church, but not a whole lot of doctrine in the church. Um, they need to go back and read Jesus and what he says about it. As Paul said, he said, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for all doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. In short, Jesus taught all truth necessary for faith and practice. Under this heading of Jesus promising the New Testament to be the Word of God, secondly, the apostles claimed this divine authority. Not only did Jesus promise, but the disciples also promised. When the apostle John said, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That's John chapter 20, verse 31. He also added, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That's the very first verse of John, 1 John chapter 1. So John you know, believed that the senses were also important, not just spiritual. And again, he said, 
in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and also verses 5 and 6, he said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. He says further, he said, We are of God, and he that knows God hears us. He that is not of God does not hear us, and thereby knows that we knows the spirit of truth and the, versus the spirit of error. And likewise, the apostle Peter acknowledged that all of Paul's writings is scripture. We see that, and I stumbled on that one as I was finishing up my devotionals in Second uh, Peter. By the way, if you want to go and read about some things as far as maybe where we're at and how relevant it is, read the, gospel, read the, um, the letter written by Jude, and also read Second Peter. Study those two letters, and you would think that you're reading today's newspaper, newspaper for the church. Believe me, it is dead on the money. I better move quickly here because we're, we're coming up on some time here. But know this, that Peter acknowledged all of Paul's writings. And, of course, he says an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, is even as our brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written to you, as also all his epistles, speaking in them these things in which are some things are hard to be understood, which they are learned and unstable rest as they do also the scriptures to their own destruction. What he's saying there, folks, is the fact that he just got finished with a treatise on the false apostles and the fact that even the apostle Paul addressed these things and the fact that these folks that are twisting scripture in the church at that time, they go and they do that to their own peril. Number three, the New Testament is the only authentic record of apostolic teaching. There is no new apostolic reformational teaching that is authentic as scripture. In fact, you have no apostles today and you have no office of prophets today either. But the New Testament is the only authentic record of, apostle, of the apostolic teachings that we have. And each book was written by an apostle or a New Testament prophet. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2.20 and chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. And there are no books in existence that came from the first century apostles or associates. All of them are contained within the 27 books of the New Testament. There were, of course... Apocryphal, also known as doubtful or pseudepigraphal false writing books of the second, third centuries, such as the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas, which are rejected by, by all um, sections of Christendom. But in both of them in their late date, long after the apostles had died, and then their first and their false doctrine, which is contrary to what uh, the apostles taught in the New Testament. It is clear that they are not authentic apostolic writings. And the early church father, Irenaeus, who was a friend of Polycarp, who was the disciple of the apostle John, said, Indeed, they have arrived at such a pitch of audacity as to entitle their comparatively recent writing, the gospel of truth, though it agrees in nothing with the gospels of the apostles, so they have really no gospel which is not full of blasphemy, but that these gospels of the apostles alone are true and reliable 
and admit neither in, an increase or a diminution of the foresaid number four, I have proved by so many such arguments. And the early great historian Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history declared these apocryphal books to be total impious and absurd. And J. Donaldson, late editor to the Antinocene Fathers, wrote, the predominant impression which they leave on our minds is a profound sense of the immeasurable superiority and unapproachable simplicity and majesty of the canonical writings. Contemporary authority on the period, Ed Yamamuchi also concluded that the apocryphal books, that the apo- that apocryphal gospels, of even the earliest and soberest among them, can hardly compare with what we have in the canonical gospels. The former are patently secondary and legendary and obviously slanted. And the extra-canonical literature taking as a whole manifests surprising poverty. The bulk of its legendary uh, the bulk of it is legendary and bears a clear mark of even forgery. Number four, and the final point there here, therefore, the all truth Jesus promised in the New Testament. From the fact that Jesus promised to lead his disciples into all truth, they both claimed this promises, promise and recorded his teaching in the New Testament. And that which is the sole authentic record of apostolic teaching. That being said, we may conclude that Jesus' promise was finally fulfilled in the inspired New Testament. So Jesus directly confirmed the inspiration, divine authority of the Old Testament, and he promised and indirectly acclaimed the same for the New Testament. So what is our conclusion? I think it's safe to say that if Jesus is the Son of God, then both the Old Testament and the New Testament are written. They are the written word of God. And this fact was confirmed by the New Testament writers who also considered other New Testament writings of both Gospels. You can read about that in 1 Timothy 5.18 and the epistles of, uh, like, for example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. He called them Scripture alongside the Old Testament. So when we talk about the critics, Jesus affirmed many many of the very things that even modern-day critics deny about the Old Testament. If Jesus taught, if Jesus was right, and what he taught was right, then the critics are wrong. So, what do we have? What we have are the teachings of Jesus being true, And when we talk about this, we have to speak to those about who reject the Bible. Those who reject the Bible do well to ask, who knew more about the scriptures, Jesus Christ or the critics? The simple logic is this. If Jesus is the Son of God, as he proved to be, then the Bible is the Word of God. Conversely, if the Bible is not the Word of God, then Jesus is not the Son of God since he would be teaching false doctrine. And there's a lot of false doctrine in the church that Jesus would not approve of. 
But Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore the Bible is the Word of God. And any thought of the limitation on his knowledge or the accommodations of his teaching so that Jesus could have been wrong has already been shown to be contrary to both his character and the facts of the case. It was not a matter of accommodation, but divine affirmation when Jesus also said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He also said that he who sent me is true, and I speak to the word those things which I have heard from him. And then lastly, he says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. You've been listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in with this week. Well, that was point 11 that we're talking about. Next week, we wrap this this series up, and I have to start moving like Jehu through Judea to possibly start even looking at YouTube to do podcasts as well. We'll still keep the audio podcast, but we may end up going and doing a, a video podcast, maybe do it live. I'm not sure yet, but keep us in prayer as we think about those things. I have also picked up a couple good friends. Maybe we can go and find a way to set up an interview. Um, one of them is a uh, former Muslim. Uh, by the name of Al-Fadi. Uh, hopefully, uh, I want to give him a shout-out for friending me today. This is being recorded a week in advance. So, uh, actually, I'm recording today. Actually, he, if you're listening to this, when you're listening to it, that was actually last Saturday uh, that he friended me. So, <laughs> you know, when you, do these, when you do these shows in advance, this is what happens. You kind of forget what, uh, what you... Um, uh, what's the best way to say it? You kind of forget where you are in the week as far as your planning and everything. But what we do is we like to plan ahead, and we like to bring this equipping to you. So if you have any questions, please email us at roblundberg315 at gmail.com. Also go to our website. If you go to our website, roblundberg.org, I have a comment block on the very bottom of the head page on the home page. You can... Uh, uh, leave your comment there and, and, and share your thoughts, uh, share your questions. We would love to have them. Perhaps they might be a podcast in the very, very near future. We've gone a little bit over the time today, but this material has been very much worth it. So I want to thank you for listening. You know, as you go out, our culture and, you know, this is, I'm recording this on July 3rd. And some of your states that you live in, and of course here in Virginia, they're passing laws. And of course, laws are going to pass. But it's not so much about denominations or abominations as much as it is with regards to the whole idea of what the truth is. And the truth is the fact that if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead then Christianity is true. And if Christianity is true, then all other things that are opposed to it are false. That means rabbinical Judaism. It means, it means Islam. It means liberalism. It means New Age theology. It means Mormonism. It means Jehovah's Witnesses. And it means atheism, agnosticism, nunism, and whatever ism and schism you think that you embrace. Your worldview is false, and Christianity is true. If you'd like to challenge me on that, I'd accept your challenge. 
I really don't care what you believe other than the fact that I desire you to come to the truth. And if you want to really know the truth, and if you're a seeker of truth, I invite you to email me as well. Again, the email is roblundberg315 at gmail.com. So until next week, as you go out, go out and give them heaven. And we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless.